Welcome to The Obsession Digression, a podcast that explores all of the cultural things that obsess us. I'm Sam Bernarczyk. And I'm Katie Walker. You know, it's occurring to me right now, as I said, welcome to The Obsession Digression, that we probably have not called it the its correct name for all five weeks now. What? I think we may have called it The Obsession Session at least once in the past. Did we? Oh, no. I don't know. I don't think it matters. <laughs> I have to been... that small radio show in Portland, please yeah. don't sue us. <laughs> um, I know, that poor baby radio station. I know that because I have a terrible memory, I've been relying on this one-sentence script the entire time. <laughs> I refuse to memorize my little piece that introduces our podcast. Uh, and even if we didn't have, like, if we did not have our names on there, I would mess that up, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm... I'm... Who am I? I have no clue. Uh, so, so, how are you this week? We're recording for a uh, long distance. This is the first time we're doing this, and it's really exciting. I feel very professional because I have set up... So, I have a home office, and I have set up a podcasting station I, Sam, this is how obsessed I am with this podcast. I cleaned up my, what's normally a rat's nest, Mm -hmm. um, around my little work area. So I removed all Shakespearean quotes so they, so they wouldn't distract me. I finally threw away the scratch lotto tickets that weren't winners and (laughs) I put away my miniature Kit Kat bars just to have this little clean Just so you wouldn't like noisily unwrap them? Yeah, exactly. Wait, so tell me about your Shakespeare quotes. Are they like pinned up on the wall? Or oh, what, yeah. Post-it notes okay. and yeah, just longer quotes that I've been trying to memorize for a while, but that I haven't gotten around to. And so I feel like, like I've written out Edmund's speech about the foppery of the world uh, about mm-hmm. four times and I've, I still don't have it memorized. Uh, so it's an incredibly nerdy exercise that just, I just need to stop. <laughs> I just need to, to be uh, a cooler person and move on. So. No, it's fine. You know, when I was in college i had this one roommate um who was very religious and he would print out little excerpts of like bible verses that were moving him that week and he would pin them to above his desk and wall and it was just like a sort of like spiritual beautiful mind we used to do that in did you ever um go to or hear about awana's Awanas? No, yeah. what is that? So it's, um, I don't know if it's a Baptist thing or what, but it's basically like Sunday school for kids, but on like a night, like on a Wednesday night usually is when ours were. And so it was like this big, everybody went, whatever church you went to on Sunday didn't matter. You went to Awanas on Wednesdays. So you all went to the same place. Yes. Um, like this giant kind of mega church housed us and... Um, at Awana's, you would, you know, get into a group that was like your age or um, educational level, and um, we would have these little booklets. And if you memorized Bible verses, you would get a token. And then <laughs> if you got enough tokens, of course, you could trade it in for a prize. Oh, my God. I went to my friend's Awana's once. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we all met in a big <laughs> gym. And yeah, they had the token thing. And I remember being very jealous because I, you know, I went to church growing up and we went to Wednesday night services because we were also protestants and they love a good wednesday night oh yeah bible study and um we had no sort of monetary 
market system. Well, see, now <laughs> so. I'm thinking. Now I'm thinking that this is wrong. Like I've never uh, questioned this before, but now I'm like, wait a minute. Like we were basically hawking our, you know, abilities to memorize Bible yeah. verses for like <laughs> for <a profit>. candy. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's like I did go to. I went to a Christian summer camp one summer. It was my. It was the only time I've ever been to a summer camp, and I like hated it so much. <laughs> Um, and I was like, mom and dad, never again. <laughs> like, if you drive me out to the this. woods and leave me with a bunch of people in cabins again, like, there's going to be a problem. <laughs> but we would have to memorize, they would call them swords. Swords. Have you heard this? It's, no. So it's like, it's a collection of at least six verses or something. I don't know if there, there are certain passages that are deemed swords or if a sword is just like any collection of six verses, but then they would have a very white, very religious version of a freestyle, like, battle or something oh, where, no. like, two people would go head-to-head -head and exchange swords. And if you lost, uh, the the winner got to push you into the river. This <laughs> so, is horrible. It's really strange. <laughs> like, very violent I'm just, violent like, really imagery. thinking through this right now. And, yeah, it was odd. It didn't seem odd at the time. We were all right? just, like, so hopped up on just, like, candy. And, yeah. yeah. This is... See, we're working through our past problematic encounters oh, Katie, with... this is tip of the iceberg. <laughs> We've got material for years. So. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. Oh, my goodness. So that reminds me, and I just sounded like an old lady. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> but can you can you please... I think, it, I think we're ready for this. Can you please share my favorite Sam Benarchik story, which I think is kind of related, right? Because... You know, you've you've told me before that y'all didn't really do Halloween, but you did dress up one time. You got an opportunity to dress up, and I feel like <laughs> you deserve you love this. this story. I, this is my favorite story. <laughs> Can you please tell it? Please? Yeah, of course. So we were not for a number of years, maybe until like third or fourth grade, fifth grade. So prior to that, we were not allowed to participate in Halloween. So, you know, in elementary school, I think this was widespread, right? You would halfway through the day on Halloween, you'd go home, have a long lunch, change, come back in costume, holiday parade. Did you do this? No. <laughs> oh, okay. Maybe this is just a New Jersey thing. No. <laughs> but we would just stay home at lunch then. Like, there was no going back. Oh, um, so excited. I know. It was, <laughs> it, yeah, it's fine. I also was taking piano lessons at the time. I took piano lessons with uh, this very intense woman named Shin Yin. And um, when I was like six or seven, maybe eight, I had uh, my first recital. And it was maybe it wasn't my first, but it was my first Halloween recital. And I decided I don't have a costume. I got to cobble something together. So I just wore my roller hockey gear. So yes. I had like a jersey, knee pads, and roller blades and a hockey stick. And I get there. For you know, a there's piano like, recital. This for is a piano what's recital. so great yeah. about it. So there's this one little girl's dressed as like a Power Ranger, I remember. And I don't remember the other costumes. But then it was my turn to go up. And I rollerbladed up to the piano. And I remember feeling like so good in that moment. And I sat down and I went to start playing and then I realized, oh shit, I'm in rollerblades. I can't hit the pedals. And I look over and I realize that the same realization is dawning on Shin Yin. Oh, and no. she just looked so angry. Like she was visibly <laughs> furious. And so I was just panicking and sweating as I'm like just quickly playing this piece as fast as I can to be done. And, this... and so it's so bad. 
<laughs> it's your like champion. It's your shining moment. I know, and it's ruined by uh, by lack of I mean, really, a host of things. Yeah, if, it was just a complete unfamiliarity with the logistics of Halloween costumes. I just love the image of you know, baby Sam. You know, proudly, you know, flying up oh, on that just stage. Gracefully, and... yeah. Just whatever the <laughs> mobile equivalent of like sauntering is. Like, that's what yes. I did. <laughs> okay, so maybe we should get to David Lynch's 1990 Wild at Heart. I have, n- I was trying to come up with a segue just now, and there's. Yeah, that wasn't like, great. <laughs> that was, there's no segue because there's, I. There's no node in this movie that is familiar to me, if that makes sense. So it's yeah. not like, um, which is oh, there's, probably well, you know what is familiar thing. to me though is um, is the Wizard of Oz. Oh, true. Okay, so did you watch that movie as a kid? Yeah, I actually, this is twice. like a good litmus. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh, so Why? I was going to compare notes because that to me is like a, a foundational film in my childhood. Yeah. Okay, I mean, it this might be a... another can of worms, but so. <laughs> when we were kids, uh, we think about all the VHS like clamshells we had on the 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 shelf. Uh-huh. There was a host of Disney movies which we were suddenly like no longer permitted to really view. Like we couldn't or I don't I can't remember if we couldn't watch them anymore. We weren't allowed to purchase any more Disney products. Oh, because like were, oh. well, so in the 90s, Disney had a subsidiary company called Miramax, which was very, you know, invested in the sort of 90s indie movie scene, right? Right. And they released a film called Kids. Do you know this movie? Kids. It has like no. Rosario Dawson's, she's like her first movie and uh, Chloe Sevigny. I have no idea how to say her name. I've never um, heard of this They're film. in it. And it's about, it's supposed to be like really raw look at like these young teens or tweens as before that term was a term um, <laughs> in like brooklyn or new york growing up and so it was supposed to be this really like raw look at like urban youth and and they i think they do drugs and drink but they also have sex and you know this is pre-internet so i'm not really trying to fault my parents but i guess when it by the time it trickled down to them what this movie was about you know it's like telephone right so the story became Disney just released porn. Oh, no. Okay. (laughs) Or even child pornography or something like that. And they were just like so, um, oh, just scandalized by it. So we couldn't have anything to do with Disney anymore. And so there were three movies. Yeah. Yeah, no. So I have not really seen any Disney movies past The Lion King. Like that's sort of where things end for me. I know because there are a lot of people our age who'd like, Especially in our program, that's ugh. Let's not talk about that. There's a weird like <laughs> a, a Disney weird vibe, love of Disney movies. But oh yeah, I feel it's, like Mulan extends... comes up a lot. No idea what Mulan's about. Every every party that we have, um, we have to sing the "Let's Get Down to Business" song at least once. I let's, mean... <laughs> let, let's clarify. By we have to sing, that means I have to stand there and roll my eyes while suddenly <laughs> yeah. everyone around me breaks into a song I've never heard before. <laughs> This is true. And I don't know what it is about our program that like drew in so many hardcore Disney fans. Yeah, we got to get some sort of sociologist to, to puzzle that we out. We had a Disney party one time. Do you remember that? We had a yeah, party I went where for we a little bit. had to dress up as Disney characters. Did oh, you? yeah. I went to that one. I don't... You were the mouse. What was I? I was Gus Gus. Yeah. I, oh, I was, the, uh, I was the fox or the hound. I can't remember which one now. <laughs> See, that's how much you do not give a shit. You're like, oh, Yeah, I've never was... seen that one either. <laughs> Does the fox? I mean, I'm guessing the fox doesn't get shot in the end, but I think that's the threat of that plot. 
I think it, I don't remember. I think that movie ends in a sad way, though. So because they can't be friends, I think. Yeah, is what it is. yeah, that's real. Okay, God. but 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 anyways, the, yeah. So Wizard of Oz was yeah. So this is one to of the say few that was left. We had okay. I'm revealing way too much about myself. We had <laughs> I think three movies that I can recall that we watched religiously then that were sort of leftover, but they didn't feel like leftovers. I think we really enjoyed watching all of them, and they were the Wizard of Oz. Hook and Sister Act Two, Back in the Habit. <laughs> <laughs> Not even Sister Act One. That's no, we weren't allowed to see the first one. <laughs> oh my god! So, so you have like no context for why she's a nun, or <laughs> no? I think I I saw part of the first one on TV, and I was like, okay, I think these nuns had like did her a solid once and housed her, and so now like they're calling, you know. <laughs> to have her return the favor. Oh man, it's such but a yeah, great so movie. But yeah, so I have great love and nostalgia for those three movies, even though, yeah, you could argue that that love might not be founded. Yeah, well, personally, I mean, our VHS collection was, speaking of Nick Cage, it was like Con Air and yes. Die Hard. <laughs> <laughs> so I, it was not it was not a kid-friendly VHS collection, but oh, rather... Oh, and Porky's. We oh, discussed. and Porky's, yes, the the treasured Porky's. So it was not. I don't know. Like my <laughs> my selection was like. Also, we watched the Titanic way too much. It was it was weird. So, anyways, <laughs> let's turn to Lynch. Even though we still have not stumbled upon a really good transition, um, <laughs> let's just and, leave it like. And then there's Wild at Hard. Okay, yeah. well, here's a good transition for us. Right, We're I'm talking ready. about the late eight, late '80s, early '90s, and like mm-hmm. how fucking weird that period is. We were very young. Um, <laughs> we were very young, and we had. Really strange influences for me, Con Air, for you, Wizard of Oz. <laughs> yep. And it's magically coalesced to this movie that we've encountered, I think rightfully so, in our adulthood. I don't think... <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> so I'm glad I didn't see this movie. as a kid. Um, but it does coalesce in this beautiful way in this 1990 film, Wild at Heart. And we should say really quickly, I don't think we've said it yet what the title of this episode is uh because i you yeah. came up with it this morning and i think it's it's just beautiful so um yeah we're calling this episode red in the face <laughs> and we'll get to why that title applies why this is important yes i'm i'm so excited to talk about the movie too i almost want to just like trash my Everything. my like book report <laughs> <laughs> because it's so like there's so much there i had no idea how like uber lynchian this film is i think is it though i mean that's a good question to ask i mean i will say it's so over the top that the whole time i just sat there just being like what am i watching well that's what a lot of critics said they were like it's like david lynch is parodying david lynch right like there's too much lynchian stuff going on and too much too much 90s but we think yeah all right i will save those comments though Okay. So let's just briefly talk a little bit about connective threads, right? That get us from Blue Velvet, our last episode, to Wild at Heart. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about briefly just a short film he makes and an opera that he produces and writes. And then you're going to talk about the source material for for Wild at Heart. Is that right? Yeah. All right. So in 1988, and I'll play a clip from um, uh, a Lynch interview on this. But uh, the French newspaper Le Figaro uh, chooses to mark the bicentenary of the French Revolution, 
right? This is 1789, and this is now 1989, (laughs) by commissioning five international directors to each make a short film under the collective title of uh, Les Français Vous Pas, which translates to The French as Seen by dot 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 so (laughs) they approached lynch uh lynch happened to be in paris with isabella rossellini they're like just vacationing and they're approached to do the french as seen by americans oh so so lynch is the stand-in for all americans for all americans (laughs) which is a little problematic i mean for like the american heartland though like yeah that's fair yeah yeah so initially oh and i can tell you too that the other directors approached were Jean-Luc Godard for France, mm-hmm. uh, Luigi Comancini for Italy, Andrei Vajda for Poland, and for Germany, Werner Herzog. Oh, yay! Yeah. <laughs> My boy! Yeah. So initially, Lynch turns down the role. He says, or not the role, he turns down the job. He says, I don't really have any good ideas for it, uh, so no thanks. And then he says... On the way home to the hotel after the restaurant, after this dinner... I started getting these ideas. So when I got back to the hotel, I called him and I said, I got ideas and I want to tell you about them. And I told him and he said, two cliches in one. (laughs) And he gives it to him, which is such a weird... Two cliches in one, all right. And Katie, this is... I mean, we've already talked about... I'm probably not the right man to discuss the short films of David Lynch. Well, I was very surprised when you said earlier this week in prep for this episode, you were like, and I'll take on this short film. I was like, why is he punishing himself? I know. Well, because I have a copy of the short films of David Lynch, and it's the last one on there. And I'm like, well, I've watched all the other ones. And then I had two chapters from two different books on it. So I was like, it's all here. It's all here for me. Ugh. It's 24 <laughs> minutes long, and it's all just nonsense. Pure nonsense. So, so what is it called? It's the called The film. Cowboy and the Frenchman. The Cowboy and the Frenchman, and it's I'm David read... Lynch's take on the French. The okay. French as seen by Americans. <laughs> and he, you'll see, too, he takes it very literally. So I'm <laughs> going to just read a quick summary of this short film. On a ranch in the American West, a rancher named Slim and his two ranch hands, Pete and Dusty, see something strange in the distance. Slim sends Pete and Dusty to investigate on horseback, and they return, having lassoed a mustached Frenchman wearing a beret and carrying a large suitcase. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. The Frenchman, Pierre... Yeah, so Pierre tries to tell the group that he's a tourist who's lost his way, but since he only speaks (laughs) French, and Slim is mostly deaf, which doesn't matter, like, none of them actually speak French anyway, his communication proves difficult. So Slim orders Pete and Dusty to open the man's suitcase, which contains, and he just pulls out all these, like, stereotypically French things, so, like, wine, cigarettes, cheese, a baguette, a model of the (laughs) Eiffel Tower... Two photographs. He pulls out like a plate of escargot and then a letter written in French and they still don't get it. And then they finally pull out a plate of French fries and they're like, oh, he's French. And it's supposed to be funny, I guess. I don't know. So then they get so... It is funny because it's like building on that like hyper cliche tendency of Americans who, you know, just immediately relegate people to these like certain boxes i mean i'm i'm following it (laughs) you're like this is gold (laughs) in my mind i'm like too easy (laughs) so they get so excited when they realize he's just a frenchman and that's so slim orders pete and another ranch hand howdy to bring some beer for a celebration and some ketchup for the french fries so they are just celebrating the fact that they found this frenchman 
Yeah, they're not at all alarmed by the fact that he was like walking through their farmland or I don't know. It's fine. With cheese in his suitcase. With all kinds of goods (laughs) that, yeah, may not have been, you know, listed on his plate. Um, (laughs) This is also like a Western and supposed to take place in like 19th century. So I'm just joking about the plane ride. (laughs) (laughs) Let's be clear. Let's be factual. (laughs) Yes. Of everything. I really want to respect the work they did to make this factually accurate. So. Yeah, so then there's just, like, these another weird scene of confusion where the Frenchman is, like, terrified of this Native American who's walking around, and then they have to explain that the Native American is just their friend named Broken Feather, and you're like, all right. And then there's just, like, a long bicultural party, right, where so the girls, farm girls, I guess, dance with Slim, and then they dance with Pierre, and then they play country songs and western songs. And so and they're, like, Pierre, doing hoedowns. They're, like, Yeah, and Pierre's, stomping. like, learning how to do this. And then Pierre, like, makes a, 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 a Statue of Liberty cake to present them all. And, it's, <laughs> and then the women, like, Yum. approach him, and the only French thing they know how to say is, like, voulez-vous coucher avec moi? <laughs> That's sort of it. They they all pass out that night after the sort of raucous partying and drinking. And the next morning, it ends with just Slim realizing that he's found a snail crawling around in his clothing. Oh, from the escargot there, or is That's that right. the connection? Okay. But Weird. David Hughes, <laughs> David Hughes, who I've quoted in the past, he just says... <laughs> This is his one sentence. I mean, he has many sentences, a whole chapter, but this is the one sentence I'm pulling out on Cowboy and the Frenchman. Oh, I lost it. Hold on one second. <laughs> I was like waiting really, really for building. it. The setup has comedy potential, and there are undeniably funny moments, too, in my view. But the overall feel is flat, uninspired, and a waste of first-class talent. Wonk, like wonk. Stanton, Walter, and Nance. That's right. It's another uh, Nance vehicle. Wonk. Oh. Next sentence. <laughs> Mercifully unavailable in any home format. <laughs> <laughs> So, very little response from... Who is the studio quoting? This is... Uh, David Hughes. David Hughes. Okay. Um. <laughs> he wrote a book called The Complete Lynch, which I use as a reference frequently. Well, I was just going to tell you a cool fact I learned about snails, because you're talking oh, yeah. about snails, and I'm reading this book on cannibalism right now, um, something I'm seriously considering for my own lifestyle choices. Mm-hmm, I get it. Snails can be cannibals. They can eat each other during sex. And not only parts of each other, but banana slugs will eat each other's penises. And then... That's just cruel. I know. But because they're hermaphrodites, it doesn't, like, ruin their reproductive life. Like... <laughs> they just are stuck on one side of that Yeah, they're just... Now they're just spectrum. the moms forever. Okay. So snails are weird. Um, oh, so it's just like... they're It's like Highlander. Like, there can only be one male. No, they can... I mean, they... Well, it's no, but that's, is that, that the impulse for the cannibalistic impulse? Is no. just like to be the one that gets to mate everyone else? No, it's just like they get caught up in this moment and sometimes <laughs> slug down a penis. And sometimes you bite a penis. <laughs> <laughs> like it really, it's not like this. It's so weird because there's not, I don't know why I'm so intense about this, but there's not like a male dominance, like a lion with his pride type of yeah, thing. Yeah, right, right. No alpha snail. No, they just like sometimes are like, well. Let's make this a little bit more kinky and <laughs> slurp down the, the penis. And <laughs> I don't know. So anyways, um, wow. I am almost done with this book. I will have more to report on cannibals next week. Do you think, they're good, do you think there's going to be a chapter in that book on um, like classroom hamsters and gerbils? 
Oh, there already has been. That? Yeah. Is it true? Yeah. All right, because no, that was always true. like a warning, and I never knew if teachers were just tricking you into like just shutting up in class. Because yeah. like, if you're too loud, you're gonna stress out the hamster. Well, I it's yeah. Eat no. all of its babies. Yeah, no, that's actually true, and it's entirely our fault, because in the wild, hamsters do not eat each other, but because we put them in these little cheesy cages um, and stress them out and, like, either overfeed or underfeed them, yeah, they totally, they will eat their babies. Oh, wow. But, I mean, we've already established that children are awful, and now I'm wondering, like, hmm. <laughs> You're like, maybe we could learn a thing or two from these hamsters. <laughs> so, finally getting too wild at heart, such a celebration of that James Dean-esque criminal figure, like the bad boy yeah, and the right. the seduction of it. That was like a really great transition. But <laughs> I still have to talk about my opera. Oh, <laughs> so I have I'm to go so back. sorry. Oh, damn it. Okay. I, it's all right. I can't do another one, though. This That's next fine. one is That's... on you. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I'm tapped out. I, I tried um... to do like four transitions. For you. And it's hard, too, because yeah. we're not in the same space. So I can't read your face. And you can't give me like a, a Spice Girls stop right there signal. What is that? <laughs> you know, where you just like hold up your hand and you go, oh, okay. stop right there. Thank you very much. I know. Well, it's because one okay. of us refused to do a uh, FaceTime. <laughs> I know. Like, <laughs> I didn't put on any makeup today. I mean, I do have, like, a dog on my lap right now also. So that might be the, like, crunchy noises that you hear in the background. Oh, I don't hear anything. <laughs> okay, good. He's eating a bone. So. Okay. Anyway, so opera. <laughs> yeah. So um, right after that short film was released in 1989, or maybe at the time that film was released, Angelo Badalamenti, he's a, a frequent now collaborator, a composer who works with David Lynch. So he composed the score for Blue Velvet. He participated in the composition for Wild at Heart for uh, the Twin Peaks pilot, which at this point is filmed, but the show isn't released yet. And for uh, an album of songs for Julie Cruz. Oh, right. Yeah, Julie Cruz is the singer in the Twin Peaks some of the Twin Peaks stuff. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And she's yeah. incredible. Like she has. Uh, fun fact. My dad loves that album. Really? The Julie Cruz <laughs> one that, yeah, yeah. Lynch and Badalamenti worked on. He's a oh, big fan. Badalamenti in 1989 is also collaborating with the Brooklyn Academy of Music. And so he's given the opportunity to produce a piece of his own. And so he approaches Lynch about working on the piece with him. They've already collaborated on all these other things I just listed. And so it seems like a natural fit. So what they do is they start pulling together elements from all their previous collaborations, including Cruz herself, who also participates. Um, and they create this sort of Baroque multimedia opera. It's on YouTube. You can find it. I'm not going to play any clips just because I don't think it's legally available on YouTube, right? There's some um, copyright yeah. sort of uh, questionable copyright issues there. Um, but you can find it there very easily. So it opens with this. It's 90 minutes long. It opens with, is that right? It's 60 minutes or 90 minutes. I don't have it open in front of me. I don't remember. Yeah. I mean, I haven't watched it. I just read about it. Oh, it's, I mean, you may put it on like in the background when you're cooking. I don't <laughs> okay. think it's like, it's the really the kind of thing that's going to hold your attention for the full, uh, the full 60 or 90. But so they, the, it opens with this projected prologue of Laura Dern and Nicolas Cage, and they sound suspiciously like they're wild at heart characters. So they don't, I don't think they refer to themselves as Sailor and Lula. But Nick Cage has that sort of weird, like, affected Elvis accent. Yes, I was just about to say it's like Elvis where he's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> and he dumps uh, Laura Dern's character. 
Oh. And so uh, people speculated that this was a sort of weird coda to Wild at Heart, that uh, Wild at Heart ends with them together and maybe Lynch regrets that. And he so he breaks them up with uh, Industrial Symphony, number one, the title of this opera. But Lynch uh, insists that Cage and Dern are playing different characters and that it's not at all related. And I think that's untrue, too, because Lynch changes the ending from the novel where they do break up and oh, stay whoa. apart yeah so and i can talk more about that in a minute but yeah lynch has been very insistent that no i hated the ending to the novel so i changed it to where they do end up together so this is what uh battle has to say about the symphony he says each piece is one great mood thing but those moods are interrupted at times we would get into this kind of heavy violence fire and sound effects heavy winds and stuff like that and musically, we would get into that, uh, get into that too. And all of that would underscore what was going on on stage. Baby dolls being dropped, burned from war and fire, <laughs> and all those six sad things. Out of all of this catastrophe, we would suddenly fade and crossfade into a beautiful thing from Julie's album. She would come down floating, and it all worked as one piece. And I should be clear that that's literal, that um, Cruz is hanging suspended most of the show. Well, did you read about the... Are you going to talk about the deer? No. Also, did you hear about this? So they they did two performances of this thing. Right. Um, so there's two live shows, each to 2,000 people. Yes. And the first one, at some point, they have... A splayed open deer, like portrayed by a man on stilts, and the actor or performer on stilts during the first run, during the first live version of it, fell (laughs) into the orchestra. Yes, so you must have seen the second second night. Yeah, Um, so he fell into the orchestra and almost died. Whoa. It was a disaster. Yeah, it's a a real drop. But he, his fall was broken by, you know, some, like, poor trombone player or something. And so is the trombone player. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, but he went on the next night. So he, he's a trooper. Oh, that's good. He bounced, he really bounced back. Yeah. Yeah, so, in addition to the splayed deer guy, people come in with, like, power saws and, like, start working on a car at one point and, like, hospital gurneys are wheeled in. So it's it's a real confusing piece. And then halfway through, it's my favorite part, Michael Anderson of almost Ronnie Rocket fame. Oh, right. Of Twin Peaks fame. He comes on stage and re-performs that dialogue between Nick Cage and Laura Dern. And he does both parts and changes his voice for each part. <laughs> and it's it's great. Okay. <laughs> so that's, um, that's what David Lynch was up to between Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart and filming well, Twin Peaks. Yeah, and he's filming Twin Peaks at the same time, and he yeah, has... Yeah, the pilot is, is done at this point. A magical... Like, this is kind of his magical time, right? Because Twin Peaks is actually going really well, and then when Wild at Heart comes out, it wins the Palme d'Or, you know, so... Yeah, his production is, level and reception is really at its peak, I'd say. It's at its I'd peak, say. yeah. Yeah, so this is Lynch in magical Lynch land, and he's also, like you said, making operas and music, and he's also doing a lot of commercials at this time, oddly enough, for, like, oh, really? and, yeah, and, like, I don't know, just a lot of, like, famous designers and stuff, so, um, and a coffee company. I'll have to company. hunt for those. Yeah, um... So All right, if we find them, we'll put them the on place. our show notes. Yeah, that would be great. Okay, so can I now transition to... You, yes. <laughs> so Lynch, height of productivity, Palm Door winner for Wild at Heart. Katie, Wild what do you have to heart. say about Wild at Heart? 
Okay, so, well, let me start by saying that I I listened to, I didn't read, but I got an audible credit for yeah. the novel by Barry Gifford in prep for this episode. And it's it's so interesting because I watched the film, listened to the novel, and then rewatched the film, and it allowed me to kind of precisely track, and I think this is what most people are interested in with adaptations, is what, you know, what gets taken out, what gets shifted, etc. So the novel by Gifford is very short and it is, like the movie, very impressionistic. So these chapters are just kind of like brief moments of dialogue, right? So you you get hardly any descriptions. There's so many different things that Lynch adds to the script itself. But what's also interesting is that Lynch keeps a lot of the language of the novel. So true to Gifford's kind of tone, right? There's this um, dreamy Lulu character who's very young and yet kind of like a wise old soul, right? She has these very philosophical thoughts. She is also, of course, a, a victim of past sexual violence, but... Yeah, which I want to talk about. Yeah, and so there's all of that, and, and Lynch very, is very faithful to that. But then there's no mob or, like, crazy Mr. Reindeer or any of that <laughs> stuff at all. Wait, is Jingledale in the original? No. Ugh. Um. So, uh, no, actually, I'm sorry. He is. He okay. is. I'm sorry. But what... Oh, and Johnny Farragut, this is what I wanted to say, uh, lives a happy, normal life. He's not, as in the film killed tortured horribly you know oh, dismembered yeah, right. whatever happens to him this is harry dean stanton's character yes and uh lulu's mother is she's a little obsessive of course and she's worried about her daughter and she does send johnny after them but she's also not straight up crazy okay uh, like so... diane ladd's character so lynch basically took these elements of the love story and he kept that sacred but then he expanded what were kind of the darker contours of the narrative in a way that went like totally, <laughs> totally <laughs> crazy. I'm like, I wish you were here because like right now I started doing like this snake movement with my hands. <laughs> and that's like how I envision Lynch, like just kind of twisting the narrative around the core, beautiful love story of Sailor and Lulu. Well, so quick thing about Diane Ladd too is that on this film, at least, she refused to ever recite the lines as they appeared in the script. She yeah. wanted to have this sort of very uh, emotionally attuned reaction to every scene. And so it's 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 unclear how much of that characterization was even planned by Lynch and how much of it was brought to the screen by Diane Ladd. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, she definitely... And it's interesting, too, because she's real life mother to Laura Dern. Yeah. So it's, I, that must be incredibly weird as an actress, right? To say, uh, not only am I going to improvise so that I feel this character much more, but I'm going to feel it in response to my real life daughter who's playing my movie daughter. And who, this is the first of three times that she plays Dern's mom. I didn't know that. Yeah, so Wild at Heart, then again in Rambling Rose, and then finally in Enlightened. Okay. And then, or I'm sorry, no, Rambling Rose, they're just both characters. It's the movie Citizen Ruth. It's an Alexander Payne film that they, she plays her mom. I have not seen any of those. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> we need to like catch up on our, our filmography. I was actually oh, yeah. looking at Nicolas Cage's filmography, and I was like, <laughs> 
I've seen I've seen all of the B list movies on in his canon, and like the good ones, you know, the ones that are kind of celebrated. Um, I've not seen. Right? <laughs> like, so I've seen you're like, like leaving Las Vegas, pass. I have not seen that, <laughs> but like raising Arizona. Hell yeah, I've seen That's that great. like ten times. Um, Bad Lieutenant, love that film. <laughs> <laughs> also, I'm, I want to know too how much of that accent or affect he was assigned because I know this is the period where I remember reading in uh, for he was in uh, Peggy Sue got married. And the uh-huh. Francis Ford Coppola did not ask him to affect that weird accent. He just kept insisting on it. And then finally Coppola was like, you know what, fine, just do it. And what's also weird is that Coppola is his his uncle, you know? Yeah, right. So- <laughs> oh, man, we're actually sketching out a weird family tree because it's super that includes weird. then you pointed out that he's cousins with Jason Schwartzman. Yeah. Jason Schwartzman has been now in at least a couple Sofia Coppola films, who is weird. the daughter of Francis Ford Coppola. I just rewatched Marie Antoinette because I was thinking maybe oh, we should do one. Sofia Coppola for one of these seasons because she's awesome. That. Yeah. All right. We'll table that for now. But Okay. But yeah, no, it's this weird, I don't know, like um, just celebrity family di- dynamo going mm-hmm. on here. Um, I Well, I watched a documentary on the making of Wild at Heart. It's like 30 Whoa. minutes long. That's cool. It it came with my six dollar DVD copy, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, the way that Cage described it is that he and Laura Dern would be acting out a particular scene, and Lynch would just shout more Elvis or more Monroe. So she was supposed to be like Marilyn Monroe esque in this entire film, and he was supposed to, of course, be you know the James Dean Elvis figure. So uh, he probably had to even amp that up even more than we would think uh, that a Nicolas Cage would do it. Does that make sense? Like, he approached it as this very Elvis-like character, but then even Lynch wanted to satirize that more so. Did you get a Monroe vibe from Dern? I didn't. That's what was... I I found that very odd because I did not get that... I mean, maybe in the simply, like, fluid movements of her body, the kind of, like, the sexual... sexual, Mm -hmm. Sexualization of her. But even her sexiness was so much, like, earthier than, um, in some ways, Um, than, than Monroe. I but did I, not I, get that. Yeah, I should say though, just to clarify, I thought Dern was awesome in this movie. I think Fuck she's yeah. really good. <laughs> I I take back everything I said about questioning the Dernesense because um, <laughs> now that I've seen this film, I'm like, whoa, she's incredible. And I yeah, I just this I think this film really shifted my understanding of her as an actress because it takes incredible range to play this strong young woman who's on an equal footing with Sailor. So the reason I say that is because, like, it seems like if you just read the narrative that he's taking her on this, like, he's basically stealing her away, right? He's absconding yeah. with this prize. <laughs> but she she wants it, right? Like, there's this beautiful yeah. scene where she's, he says, like, um, Nicholas Cage is like, you just crossed the state line with a murderer. And she goes manslaughterer don't exaggerate (laughs) (laughs) and so it's like this lovely parody between the two and so i thought she like dern played this incredibly well yeah but she also plays and like we've mentioned this um already but the the victim too she plays this especially in the bobby peru scene You know, so, and we'll get to that, but... Well, maybe this is a good time just to jump in and start talking about the film. Yeah, I think so. So, it opens 
I mean, it's really bookended by Nicolas Cage going to prison and being released from prison, right? Um, mm-hmm. Twice. So he's he goes to prison, is released in the first five minutes, and then again at the end. But the opening scene is uh, he's uh, defending himself. Someone We learned that Laura Dern's mom, Diane Ladd, has hired someone to kill Nicolas Cage's character named yeah. Sailor because she doesn't approve of Sailor's influence on Lula. And in defending himself on the, the steps outside of this is it a performance hall? I couldn't tell. Or they, like they were a, there for yeah, a party. Yeah, or like a casino or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he very brutally kills him. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, at this he point, smashes his head against yeah, the floor. And was, oh, the yeah. head like cracks open a bit or something. There's like weird, yeah. some weird crunchy sound effects. <laughs> um, did you imagine this scene though? Like if it had been Kyle MacLachlan instead of Nicolas Cage? That was oh, the first thing I thought of. Is just trying to picture <laughs> Kyle MacLachlan like brutally murdering that guy. <laughs> Just crack me up. That would not. It would. It would not work. (laughs) (laughs) And then he does a celebratory chicken walk back up to (laughs) London. He drinks a Heineken. Yeah. Yeah. So this really gives us a very quick understanding of the the dynamic of at least the three principal characters that that Nicolas Cage, you know, is is sort of in an unjust situation, but he is also legitimately dangerous. And Laura Dern is is sort of wilder than her mom would like her to be. And then her mom, Diane Ladd's character, what is the mom's name? Do you remember? It's like Marguerite or Margaret. Yeah. Something so like Mar- that. Yeah, Marguerite is a, is, is a, a dangerous lady herself. She's also um, straight protective. up crazy. Like she oh, yes. is legitimately insane so and we'll get to that as well yeah well so so lula wants to go see sailor when sailor gets out of jail and i will i mean i guess there's no point i wanted to include the scene but it's really more for video Um, it's the video that's important is that margaret sort of uh, forbids her from going and she says she's going to go anyway and then there's Mm -hmm. this long shot of at least 30 seconds that's closed up on on diane lad's face as she, we just watch her look furious and clench her fist and like down um, a, martini. a martini. Yes, <laughs> yeah, and she. It's I did so read over about the top. that particular move. She she improvised all of that. Like none of that was originally in there. So can you imagine? Mm. Um, like Lulu after that, um, you know, her mom says you can't ever see Sailor again, and Lulu goes like, "Hell, I will." Yeah, right. Uh, then just the scene ending there, it would have been so just yeah. uneventful. But Diane lad again like brings in this improv moment that's just wonderful (laughs) so and this is my hot seat question for you that i've been planning to ask you do you love or hate margaret as a character yeah oh i think it's oh that's a good question damn you sam um (laughs) you know i would say it's actually it's pity i think it's pity because She's so obsessed with, and I totally get this because I'm about to turn 30. This, like, (laughs) like, because I'm about to become a mom, (laughs) (laughs) um, an alcoholic, you know. Um, (laughs) so this need to because the way I read her character, right, is that she wants to in part be her daughter, like, she wants to have control over her daughter who is young and gorgeous and you know, wild at heart. But she herself has, like, several men in her life, and each scene that you see her in, she's all done up in this, like, very Mm -hmm. bright blue uh, eyeshadow and, like, poofy hair. And so she's Red nails. Yes. And so I read her as this kind of desperately conflicted woman who herself wants to be young and beautiful and also wants to be that maternal figure. 
And so I just feel bad for her, right? I feel bad for the way that she loses control over her daughter so drastically, right? Like, uh, Lulu rebels to such a degree that she doesn't even, you know, contact her mother. She just runs away from home. And, yeah. So it's just... like a, a campy southern Betty Draper. Yes. Where it's like yeah. she she knows how to do one thing, and that's sort of just be a perfect object of desire. But then she doesn't really know herself beyond that and just sort of acts out in these crazy ways. Yeah, yeah. And I, I feel for that. What? <laughs> I feel it. <laughs> I'm going to put lipstick all over my face later today. <laughs> I love that scene. We're talking about the close-up of her face. And I do want to say, though, that one thing that really strikes me, a, a huge difference between this and, say, Blue Velvet, is that, by and large, this isn't a close-up heavy film. And mm -hmm. I think what that the, the effect of that is that everything does feel much less intimate to me. There, I feel like there's um, a sort of distance or detachment from a lot of the characters that I don't feel say? as I don't feel as um, intimately placed into the scene as I did when I watched Blue Velvet. But what about the sex scenes? Because those are, I mean, they're not close they're up, but they're, they're pretty graphic. Yeah, yeah, they're graphic, but I don't, yeah, I don't know. They felt, they just, maybe there's something so performative about them. Maybe it's an issue of tone or something, but I don't, yeah, there wasn't oh, the you, same closeness. Did you notice um, that the tone of those sex scenes is um, the colors of the rainbow? Oh, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like they. I'm so, they I was already through... bogged down in the 1700 <laughs> other Wizard of Oz references. That's yeah, true. The the very more explicit ones, but mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like every time they have sex, it's um, you know, originally in color, but then it moves to you know a yellow tint or red tint, blue. I noticed blue and purple at one point. So mm, yeah, that's smart. Yeah, I did pick up on that. <laughs> Um, well, and let's talk about let's talk a little bit more about the sexuality because a lot of the conflict is centered on sex. That there's this weird sort of incestuous love triangle, right? That that yeah. Margaret is uh, sort of lusts after Nicolas Cage, and he sort of rebuffs her. And it's unclear to me, at least, if that's like a genuine like desire she has, or if she's just trying to sort of implicate him in something to break I, I Cage don't know. and Lulu apart. Yeah, because it starts out so. Um, he has this flashback uh, right before he's attacked right. the guy, and it's um, Marguerite is cornering him in the bathroom as he's urinating, and she says, "Yeah, like, like in the stall." It's, yeah. she does not wait outside. <laughs> no, and she says at first, she's like, "I, you know, I know you want to have sex with Lula's mama." Yes, uh, and she says it like that. But wait, then, how does she say it, Mama? Um, <laughs> But then she immediately threatens him because he has been involved in something sketchy, right? Involving right. the death of her previous husband, Lula's uh, father. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, I, I agree with you that it's unclear whether or not that was a, I mean, I think it was because of my reading of her as wanting to yeah. part, in part be Lulu. Yeah, that makes um, sense. So yeah, I think. There's this weird dual desire thing going on there. Well, so yeah, there's the way in which like she's sort of sexually defined. And then the same with Laura Dern's Lula, where one of the first things we learn about her is that she uh, was raped as a, a young yeah. teenager by um, Uncle Pooch. Yeah, and it's uh, it does it gives us this violent kind of uh, it's, flashback it's a terrifying for that. scene. It's awful also, because her mouth is all bloody. Oh, yeah. And, and why does she lie? She tells Sailor that her mom 
that Margaret knows nothing about this rape having happened. But we see yeah. in the flashback that not only does Margaret f- interrupt it, like just after it's finished, and attack Uncle Pooch, but it's also implied that she then has him killed. Yeah, I have no idea. I was trying to figure that out as well. Why not say... And then my mom comes and, you know, comforts me or attacks Uncle Pooch or whatever. Like, there's... Well, Why because... does she withhold that from Sailor? I have no idea. What's well, interesting my... then, structurally, because then they're each carrying this sort of secret about Marguerite. They're both complicit in her carrying out two different murders of, yeah. of men, right? Well, and another thing, too, there's... in later in the film, there's a flashback of Lulu having an abortion. Mm-hmm. Oh, and... it's so strange. The I way know. it's filmed is... I mean, it's it's really well... It's just a crazy shot, but yeah, it's... Yeah, it's it's very upsetting. My guess or my reading of that moment was that there's no way that a young Lulu would have been able to get an abortion without like her mother right. helping right. her in some way. So like I read that as maybe leaving that out for Sailor as yeah, like you said, kind of a, a protection device, if you will, like a, a way to protect her mother from associations with subsequent deaths. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. Another so, thing that yeah, I... go ahead. Sorry to interrupt, but another thing that I love about the sex scenes... I mean, any <laughs> sex scene is good for me. Uh, <laughs> but... And this plays out in the novel, too. There's... Lulu, post-coitus, has these lovely, you know, very powerful, very emotional lines. Like, she says, like... You know, I just love your cock the way that you, you know, sometimes it sings to me. Like, she has these very, very sexy, very um, intimate things that she says to Sailor. And every time he has the most lame-ass response, (laughs) where he's like, I like you too. Or, you know? (laughs) Like, did you notice how, like, he... and. Like, that's part of his character is that he's not as verbal as she is. But, like, I hated him in those moments where, you know, she's just like pouring praise on him and he's just like well you're just about the cutest thing i've ever seen you know like i don't know it just (laughs) (laughs) drove me nuts yeah it's sort of i mean i don't know if i'm reading this scene right but i think it's like 40 minutes in they're at a bar and she's asking him to relay this sort of previous sexual encounter he's had and he doesn't seem to understand that she's trying to generate some sort of like sexual intensity between the two of them that moment (laughs) and he's just telling the scene (laughs) yeah and she's like yeah, that was such a weird response because then she, after hearing about this encounter with this other woman, which they do visualize in a, you know, in a flashback, <laughs> yeah. then she's like, you're going to have to take me back to the hotel. Yeah. <laughs> so strange. She's like, let me spell this out for you. <laughs> but yeah, um, so th- that actually, though, ties into this sort of like, on this sort of runner in the film. And that's that there's this hint that there's maybe a slight reservedness on Sailor's part. So we have this scene, it's 20 minutes in, they're at um, this show, it's sort of mm-hmm. like a punk rock show, and yeah. <laughs> um, Nicolas Cage gets in a fight with a guy who's hit on Laura Dern, and he sort of lightly beats him up, to schools him, and mm-hmm. then, as a show of his love to Laura Dern, breaks into an Elvis song. Yes, which the punk rock band immediately yeah, no, backs up him up, has backs on, him up on. <laughs> I know, it's perfect, because it is like Blue Velvet, right? That, like, his aesthetic, regardless of where it's set, it always has to fuse or infuse some sort of 50s vibe, right? Yes. So it just makes sense that a punk rock band could just suddenly segue into Elvis. 
But course. she asks him later, she said, why did you sing that Elvis song to me and not Love Me Tender? Because I know Love Me Tender is your favorite one. And he doesn't really give an answer, right? And that mm-hmm. she keeps waiting, you know, and it's, it's, it sounds to me like a metaphor that <laughs> she keeps waiting for uh, him to sing Love Me Tender. Uh, oh yeah and he he never does does he ever i don't think he does in the very final moment oh he does oh okay oh i didn't i forgot about that i guess so (laughs) we'll we'll Um, get there okay so i mean really from this point on he's out of prison they hit the road they're driving to the west coast that's their goal and Mm -hmm. so we just jump back and forth between this picaresque they're having this road trip movie and uh margaret's uh attempts to hunt them down and find them yes and so we should bring in johnny farragut and marcellus santos at this point and mr reindeer so um she first she's date like she's dating johnny who is this detective maybe a private detective dude um and he's you know he loves her and he doesn't quite see all of her craziness so he agrees to track down Lulu and he heads off towards New Orleans to find them. Um, Meanwhile, Marguerite is so anxious about her daughter that she also calls former love interest or just dude who's been sweet on her, um, Marcellus uh, Santos, Mm -hmm. who's clearly a gangster, (laughs) you know, a drug (laughs) drug seller, um, etc. A a drug seller? A drug seller, like... (laughs) drug dealer sorry <laughs> a drug He's a, how, a, a drug how lame did i sound just now a proprietor of drugs um <laughs> so uh but what he does is he calls this guy named mr reindeer and mr reindeer has like the coolest life i have to say he just has all of these like naked women around him all mm-hmm. the time. These hot naked women, and there's this disgusting scene where when Marcellus when calls toilet? him, yeah, he's <laughs> on the toilet drinking As coffee. Topless woman dances. Yes, for him. <laughs> I was like, dear God, like how many excesses do you need? <laughs> I really like spent. I like thought a long time about that woman's inner life. Like, how mm. does she feel about this? Like, is she just numb to it? Is this just another job, or does she really, like, have to talk herself up for it? Be like, you know what, he's going to be on the toilet, but I can do this. You know, but she's smiling. That's what's odd about it. Like, Mm. maybe she's such a good performer, but to me, like, she seemed, like, (laughs) used to it. Yeah, like, like, this is just another Monday. Dude, taking a shit. Um, (laughs) So, anyway, so Mr. Reindeer is, you know, kind of like a criminal overlord, and he... Um, contacts his very associates like to... Like Grace Zabriskie. Yes. She was one of my favorite characters in this. Yes, she's... Uh, she's Of Twin Peaks fame. Yes. And Big Love. We talked about Big, Big Love a few weeks back. And she's just... Um, she said in an interview after playing this role that people were le- legitimately scared of her. Like, people would see uh, her in a I've restaurant. I've been scared of her in every <laughs> role I've seen. She is quite intense. Um, so, yeah, she's one of them. She's one of the murderous cronies. And then another one is Bobby Peru. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Bobby we have Peru this... we don't meet for a while still, though, we don't. right? That's right. right. Okay. Right. But, um, so one of them's after Johnny, because Marcellus wants to get rid of Johnny. And one of them's after Sailor. That's the right. the deal, essentially. Yeah, and so we're meeting all of these sort of gangsters who are um, associated with Marguerite, and then we're also just meeting other like random characters. Like uh, my <laughs> favorite is Jingle Dale. 
Jingle so, Dale. Yeah. Can I say like this is played by Crispin Glover? <laughs> Crispin <laughs> Glover to me has a face that I cannot for the life of me like retain. Oh, see, like, I, I always he has see a him memorable... and I'm like, oh, who is that? And then I'll look at him and be like, oh, it's Crispin Glover. Like, I know the yeah. name and I can never bring his face to mind or recognize him in anything. Well, for me, he's played like so many odd, yeah. random characters. Right. That... Like, if you're watching a really weird performance, there's a great chance it's Crispin Glover. <laughs> yeah. And like this one with Jingle Dale. So, oh, this. He's How's... in this. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, like, in terms of narrative, this is probably something that you could have cut. You know, like, this mm-hmm. is not but why? adding anything really <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> to the plot. <laughs> I was but, actually so just wondering right now, I was like, wait, what does this have to do with the story? Like, nothing. I don't remember. It's just Lulu. It's so he's Reminiscing. The cousin. Yeah, she, he's her cousin. And she is reminiscing about, she's telling Sailor about... Um, what like so sailor says that he has a lot of bad ideas and he's trying to fight them off and so that reminds her of her cousin mm-hmm. dale who has a lot of bad ideas and we'll like play putting a short clip right here oh here, good okay she so she says more than a few bad ideas running around us out there well my cousin dale was always fighting bad ideas see dale loved christmas we used to call him jingle dale he wanted christmas to last all year long He sure would scream out when his mama told him it was summertime and Christmas was six months off. And so some of those bad ideas are um, being obsessed with Christmas. Mm -hmm. To the point in which he will not take off this decrepit Santa suit. It's so nasty, so dirty. Staying up all night making sandwiches over and over again. I love he's like, I'm making my lunch. (laughs) Which is his only actual line (laughs) in the movies. I'm making my lunch. Um, (laughs) And then, of course, the kind of most visceral image that we have is uh, putting cockroaches in his underpants, especially on his anus. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, we have this lovely... And you get, like, I I believe they didn't even bother to hire a stunt double. You know, they're just like, Crispin, you're going to take it from here? And he's like, I got it. He's like, I need to really get into my character, so I'm going to put actual cockroaches guys, on method. my butthole. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually what he brought to the script in the same way that Nicolas Cage brought the snakeskin jacket and Diane yes. Ladd brought her own emotional interpretation. He was like, guys, I've got some cockroaches down here. If we just want to <laughs> run with it. Can we talk about the snakeskin jacket since you brought that up? Oh, and I'm going to play a clip right now. This is from that punk rock show. Um, oh, the individuality right quote? here. Yes. This is a snakeskin jacket. And for me, it's a symbol of my individuality and my belief in personal freedom. <laughs> and, the, and the guy just says back to him, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> what, okay, and a fun fact about this jacket is that it's completely a cage intervention. Right. Um, he was just like wearing it around one day, or maybe brought it to set. No, I think he, he was, insisted like, on bringing it. Oh, okay, yeah, and he was like, you know, I can't do a Nicolas Cage voice, but he's like, Lynch, <laughs> got this jacket here. <laughs> <laughs> so it's so great, and it's so perfect. Like, he did oh, yeah, read it makes that. A ton of sense. Yeah, so. Meanwhile, Diane Ladd is losing it. Now we're getting to the scene in which she takes her famous red lipstick and sort of figuratively... Bright red lipstick. Yeah, 
figuratively slashes her wrist with it and then covers her entire face with it. Which, if you haven't guessed, is why we named this episode Red in the Face. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Because (laughs) it's so... It's... It's the apex of this movie, I would say, because it represents oh, yeah. all scene. of the bubbling energies um, and everything that is just about to burst over, or in her, like, literally is just pouring forth. So she rubs this red lipstick into her hair, even, oh, so it's, like, yeah. up into her bangs. And for me, like, again, not to harp on the same point, but that was just another instance of her obsession with being this like beautiful southern belle and then that like kind of outpouring of emotion represented in covering your face in bright makeup so that's my take on it (laughs) i think that's great and so can i ask a quick clarifying question because the scene that directly follows this is when they come upon the car accident with cheryl and fenn yeah was this just a random scene or were we supposed to understand that someone attacked this man and woman in their car thinking that it was Sailor and Lula. I I don't think so. I think this was a random... Okay. I th- because I then mean... it's quoted in the newspaper, like a scene later by one of the strangers yeah. around the campfire. I think it's just a... For me, it was just an omen, right? Okay. This, yeah, sure. Um, this forecast of how terribly tragic Sailor and Lulu's story could be, or is, I yeah, mean, right. in part going to be... Um, so, but I don't think there's any sense that, like, they, you know, were attacked by, you know, one of Santos's men or something like that. Okay. Well, in that case, that takes us to the next scene in which we're really set up for the the longest stretch of narrative, I think. And that's where first we meet Jack Nance, a rocket scientist. Let's just play a really quick <laughs> clip because of his it's gibberish. Jack Nance. It is Jack Nance. He's a rocket scientist. My dog barks some. Mentally, you picture my dog, but I have not told you the type dog which I have. Perhaps you might even picture Toto. Lula and Sailor are unimpressed, but this is also where they meet Willem Dafoe's character. Oh, Bobby and Bobby Peru, like the country. <laughs> and I wrote, and Timmy. Timmy is very stressed out. Wait, who's Timmy? He's the one who reads the paper and then just like starts yelling about how it was a good thing oh, he died. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Timmy. Okay, yeah. Very stressed out. And then this is also a scene later, we find out that Laura Dern is pregnant and she breaks the news to Nicolas Cage. And we should say, too, that they are pretty much stranded in this small town called Big Tuna, Texas, um, because they've, you know, trekked across the southern U.S., um, going through New Orleans and, um, you know, Houston, places like that, and they've essentially run out of money. Right. So they kind of have to stop in this little podunk town, uh, it turns out that one of Sailor's past associates, criminal associates, uh who is played by Isabella Rossellini, is also hanging out in Big Tuna. So they're kind of stuck in this small, incredibly hot desert-like town, and she's kind of, she's there in the background, and she'll play a role yeah. in a little bit as well. Well, and here's, we sort of get, like, a thematic plot line playing out, and then, like, a narrative through line. And so 
The narrative one is that Isabella Rossellini is now working with Willem Dafoe to set up Nick Cage. Yes. So yeah. Nick Cage is talking him into talking. I'm sorry. Willem Dafoe's character is talking Sailor into returning to a sort of life of crime, doing this bank robbery with him. But he's given uh, a gun filled with blanks so that Willem Dafoe can either kill him or frame him for this mm-hmm. crime and, and have Cage take the fall, have Sailor take the fall. Meanwhile, he also comes into Lulu's motel room while oh. Sailor is gone. And we need to talk about this. And sexually assaults her. Yes. And, and so this is... Ugh, Problematic for so many reasons, right? So, I mean, we talked in the Blue Velvet episode about tracking whether these accusations of misogyny are fair that are being yeah. leveled to Lynch. And it, I here, I think there's a compelling case that, that, yes, they are fair, that we're given the only two female characters in this film are, are wholly defined <laughs> by <laughs> by sex. And in, yeah. in Dern's case, really by just a history of sexual assault. And this is um, a Lynchian um, addition to the film as well. Like, this is not in the the novel. So that makes it even, for me at least, a little even more uh, suspect, right? Like, that... And (sighs) the rape scene is is really... It's it's fairly graphically filmed, but also weirdly, discomfortingly, sensually filmed. Mm Mm-hmm. And also, like Dorothy Valence in Blue Velvet, we're given the implication that that Lula might be enjoying it. Yeah. And this is... it's troublesome that it, it, it troublesome. doesn't matter whether she's enjoying it or not, right? <laughs> that she's still like a hundred percent being victimized here. Oh yeah. It's, it's incredibly disgusting. Um, so just to set the problematic scene, right? She's wearing this kind of sexy outfit, uh, in, t- in anticipation for sailor and Bobby yeah. Peru barges into her hotel room he first um, claims that he has to pee, and he does pee. <laughs> and then <laughs> he gets up really close to her, and while groping her and um, grabbing her, you know, quite violently, he demands that she say, fuck me. Oh, right? yeah. And I didn't so, felt strange because I found myself hoping she wouldn't say it. But yeah. say it or don't say it. it doesn't it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't, right? Yeah, it's not like it's not a testament to the strength of her character if she refuses to say it or something. And so, mm-hmm. and it's just and so what's weird about this scene is that you see uh, for one shot moves away from their kind of close up, and you just see her hand kind of stretched out and um, strained, and so you don't know if she's just so scared or if she's. You know, orgasming. Well, we've we've learned from an earlier scene though, because we had that shot of her hand in an earlier scene to show that she's enjoying. Okay, so you, um, you think encounter. that she is? I think because we were already yeah. sort of taught how to read that hand gesture in an earlier scene that is coming back. I think we're meant to read it in the same way. Yeah, I guess so. And so, yeah, it makes it it makes it difficult to. Um, I don't know. Like this scene is probably the most talked about of the film and it makes it difficult to read because I yeah. want to like, honestly, I want to be like 100% a fan of Lulu in terms of like, Oh, she's, you know, the strong woman. Like I said earlier, I characterized her as strong, but then this scene, like, why doesn't she just like beat the shit out of him? Or, you know, well, like I would, freak out. I would say though too, like it again, though, I don't, I think, I don't think the issues is with, with Lula, right. That, you can still champion that character even if she decides not to 
try to physically fight him. I don't think, yeah. again, like that's incumbent upon her. That is in any way revealing anything about her strength of character. It's just more about the choice of characterization on, mm-hmm. on Lynch's part. I think that's fair, right? Like it's, um, uh, I don't know. I'm really struggling in my response to this just because it's so problematic. And, you know, I hate to say it too, but like Willem Dafoe, kind of brilliantly play, portrays this Ugi character, right? Like oh, so, it's disgusting. so convincing. Yeah. The disgusting fake teeth that he has, um, and yet like the cadences of his voice, he just sounds so much like a creeper. And so part of what is um, so hard for me for this scene is how realistic it is. <laughs> you know, like how yeah, intimate it, it feels in really a way upsetting. that's that's, yeah, that's very upsetting. So yeah, I just, I don't know. Like, I don't know where to land on this issue of, like, charging Lynch himself with consistently portraying women in this negative victim light. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, that's the case, too, if we if we think about Twin Peaks with Laura Palmer, right? So... Yeah, who, yeah, who yeah. ultimately does become defined by her also sort of, like... Uh what's the word masochism like her well her desire to be a victim yeah and also this sort of devious sexuality as well yeah so i don't know like sam do you have other thoughts on this or am i just kind of like i don't know do you do you diverge from me in thinking that this is uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the words. I'm like struggling. To I mean, find I think the words. I, I agree that it's a problem. I think okay. it's it, no way is um, any sort of reflection on on Think Dern, who I think again is really really good and does great work in this. But I just think that it is a problem at the level of sort of the the script or the characterization, right? And then maybe it is like I I think if I think of Blue Velvet in a vacuum, I'm more likely to be sort of forgiving about that film because it is one. I don't think. I don't think there's anything... How, well, let me take a second to think about how to say this. Because it's not as though one cannot sort of uh, examine a sadomasochistic-like female character, right? right. Um, but when you start seeing it consistently throughout someone's canon, when you start seeing all these female characters have be defined um, purely in terms of their sex lives and yeah. specifically like the fucked upness of their sex lives then it starts to seem yeah a bit more distracting I agree I agree so huh but we, yeah. can, <laughs> we can put a pin in that for now though and and just finish up our, our discussion of the film so if that's the sort of this this idea of, of Lulu having a child and having to sort of face her traumatic past that rape again in the present that's mm-hmm. going on in one sense what's going on with nick cage is that he's been also having to face the past because he's or repeat the past because he's drawn into uh, a bank robbery this bank robbery goes guy, yeah. yeah spectacularly bad well it's not a bank robbery they're robbing a feed store um, oh i thought it was sorry to, okay no, well no. like sorry to be lame and be like no it's a feed store <laughs> well actually <laughs> but i just it's not as sensational as a bank um okay. but they and there's this moment of dark humor where the two poor guys who've gotten shot are looking for one of their shot off hands oh and the um, dog has it <laughs> yes so it's oh so it's if we're gonna great. talk about the body horror when willem dafoe is shot by a cop he falls on a shotgun and shoots his own head off and yes. it goes flying and blood spatters against um the wall oh. of the feed store so sam this reminds me i have mm-hmm. a confession to make um a confection 
a confession. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not making you any candy. Um, so, for, like, since three days ago, until I was 29 and a half, okay. um, <laughs> I have always thought that a sawed-off shotgun literally meant that people would take a normal shotgun and saw off part of it. Okay. Like, I like envisioned, like, yokels basically every time they bought a shotgun... Like buying a special saw to to cut into a gun, and so I asked Ryan about this last night, and he was like, "No, you idiot! That just means it has a shorter barrel." He's like, "They make them that way." He's like, "No one has ever sawed off, oh. <laughs> like literally taken a saw to their <laughs> shotgun." Okay, I think I'm there with you though. I'm like halfway <laughs> there because I know. A sawed-off shotgun has a much shorter barrel, but I did think that it was through the use of a saw as no. a tool. Apparently, so saws was... have nothing to do with it. <laughs> Why do you think it's called a sawed-off shotgun? Because it's like, it's as if somebody sawed off the barrel. Hmm. Do you think maybe there's but some history to it? Maybe there is. Like, we should, you and I should become gun enthusiasts and Yes, we're going to infiltrate the NRA. Step one. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that reminds me of this latest Portlandia sketch where um, Carrie has to go to um, a gun store with a character who's played by Steve Buscemi. It's yeah. so good. <laughs> she has to pretend to be a gun enthusiast and she actually, she's, you know, like very feminist, liberal, left-wing, yeah, right. anti-gun. But then she gets caught up in the like gun world and like actually gets into <laughs> <laughs> like buying me like a all right i have to look that. this up that sounds awesome so good i haven't Anyways. been watching this latest season i usually wait for that's the show i wait to come on netflix so but i'll yeah. check it out i mean i think that's a fair a fair wait because it's actually i mean it's funny but it's not it's like cute funny it's not yeah like, it's not like i don't feel like this person need to watch it immediately yeah it's no veep it's no veep. Uh, so. i just see the trailer it's yes. coming back soon uh, <laughs> yes I did. Anyway, oh, we are we are like going way over, so let's wrap this. I up, see that <laughs> the plot because we still have to talk about conspiracies. I have a good yeah. one. Okay. So okay, so Nicholas Cage gets arrested, goes back to jail. Then we get a card that says it's been five years, ten months, and twenty one days. Long so time. We found and a, she Lulu has had a baby, yep. so she decided to keep the baby. And she has established a firmer boundary with her mother. So yes. this time again, we have another repetition of the past where the mother forbids her from from seeing uh, Sailor. And she says, what does she say? If you try to stop me, I'll rip your arms from the roots. Yeah. <laughs> and then hangs up on the mom. And then she yes. does the, the most hilarious thing ever that I've never considered doing is that since she's not seeing her mom face to face and can't throw water in her mom's face, she grabs a photo of her mother and throws water in that face. <laughs> <laughs> yes it's like yeah, the like ultimate you showed victory. her yeah <laughs> so then um lula and her son go to pick up sailor from the prison and we witness sort of one last act of abject violence where some guys on the ground sort of bleeding to death and then they pick up nick cage and then nick cage has second thoughts and th feels that he really can't be a dependable father and a dependable husband and so mm -hmm. he thinks it's best to go a separate way and then do you want to say what happens uh, then he, so he's walking down this road alone and then suddenly he's attacked by this gang of dudes. And as he's attacked, he has this realization that no, he actually needs to be with Lulu or, is it, or Lula. Sorry. Have yeah. I been saying Lulu? I think we've been saying Lula. Oh, no. Okay. It's so it's, 
Lula. Um, and so he goes, he runs well, what after about, her. How does he have the realization, though? What do you mean? Because Glinda comes to oh, him. Oh, oh my God, And is yes. played by Laura Palmer. <laughs> yes. Um, sorry, I totally forgot that. I, I mean, I didn't forget it, but um, yeah, she appears. And that's how this ultimate Wizard of Oz wrap-up, right? Where she says, like, no, you, you're meant to be together. And they, he runs after him and kisses Lula, and it's all good. It's all yeah. a happy ending. So he jumps onto her car as she's stuck in traffic. And I'm going to send you, actually, I can do this right now to see if you corroborate this. But he appears to have um, ob- very obvious sunscreen on his nose in this scene. <laughs> I took Did screenshots. Not this. I will put them up on our um, show notes as well. Okay, <laughs> they're coming to you right now. Okay, good. Are you, you have to enlarge them? them. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. he pulls Laura Dern out of the car, and he finally sings Elvis's "Love Me Tender," and so we know then that this yes. is like a you know a, 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 a true statement of his sort of committed love to her. Yes. Oh, that is definitely sunscreen or right? something. Or like the makeup person just Yeah, like just really dropped day. the ball. <laughs> yeah. um, so, and then also, I just wanted to pose the question. This movie ends with people dancing on the hood of their car on a highway stuck in traffic. Is mm-hmm. this movie ending where La La Land begins? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe this is the origin story to La La Land. I hope that's the case. I hope that is right. I, I really want to know do. too that like vanilla Ryan Gosling exists in the same world as like these two crazy people. <laughs> he would get his ass oh, beat for sure. He definitely would. Oh man! <laughs> and so we should say too, like this this movie has a, a strange legacy. You said it won Palme d'Or um, in 1990, and and yeah. Is, like, it- yeah, Sorry, but... I didn't mean to interrupt you, but like it's also gotten a lot of flack too because yeah, of mixed. the violence. And you, I mean, you can tell. And, in... and Khan has a history of that too, of sort of having yeah. odd choices for Pomdor. But yeah, it's, but it's like... also just so '90s. Like I watch and I think, like, how could this possibly have been won or even loved by anyone? But then you think about like early '90s yeah. indie film. Like this actually really fits. It totally um, does. Yeah, so maybe it's not so crazy. And, you know, like, this also is such so clearly a progenitor to, like, Tony Scott's True Romance a few years later. Oh, right. That Christian yeah. Bale, Patricia Arquette film, and so. Yeah, and so I, I wanted to read a quote really quickly because mm-hmm. talking about, very briefly, about the reception of this film. So it was... It was a winner. Like, it did it did pretty well, but um, originally it did not. So, and one of those reasons, as you can probably tell from the tone of her voices, was that scene with Willem Dafoe, but also um, the way that Johnny Farragut dies in the film, that is way toned down, even from what it originally was. So it was originally a much more extended torture scene. Oh, and, I'm glad we didn't see all that then. Yeah, amen. But here's what Lynch said about, um, like, sending this out to test audiences. And we know, like, Lynch has never done well with a test audience, (laughs) essentially. Um, So here's what he says happened when they showed Wild at Heart. So he said, in the first test screening, 80 people walked out at one point. But I didn't want to change the film. I thought that maybe that group was too weak. 
So I tried it again on a second test screening, and 100 people got up and left during the same scene. It involved the torture of Johnny Farragut, um, and we all finally agreed that the scene was really killing the film, so we spent a lot of time working on it, i.e. excising it. Oh, nice. Uh, so, yeah, that's... So we get a very brief death of Johnny Farragut, which I'm grateful for, instead of what is probably a much more horrific... Oh, yeah. Uh, Listen, I am all for just reducing as much gore on film as possible, because I'm <laughs> such a baby. I can't watch torture scenes. I can't so are watch you, like, not a Tarantino scenes. film, like, or a <sighs> uh, film fan? Tarantino, I'll, I'll go see his movies sometimes. Like, I haven't seen this most recent one, but I've seen, like, Inglorious Bastards, and I saw... I almost walked out of Django Unchained. Actually... During the torture scene, I like yeah. stood up and got my coat, and then I was with two friends, and one like grabbed my arm, and was like, "No, just it'll be over in a second." Yeah, and I, no. I, I felt as though I'd like suffered through those movies, though. I was yeah. glad to be able to talk about them, you know, and I like you know being part of you know the internet conversation and conversation with friends about what's going on in culture, but it was rough. It's sure. Tough for me. Sure, yeah. So, um, well, you didn't get too too much of that with Wild at Heart. No, Thank this goodness. wasn't bad. Yeah. And the blood, this is also the era of that, like, Play-Doh-y colored red blood <laughs> yeah. that just makes, it, it all goes down so easy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about, do you have a conspiracy theory Yeah, so I've got some good forum posts, and then we'll move to a conspiracy. Yes. So, first a couple from <laughs> from Reddit. This is a Reddit post from David Lynch's Wilder Heart. I'm sorry we can't alternate, by the way, this week. But oh, that's okay. Next, yeah, you just week. take it away. So this is uh, Willem Whitfield. He writes, <laughs> Wild at Heart may not be the best film of all time, but it certainly has the best final act of all time. I'm a big fan, and I tell people that this film is my spirit animal. It's, <laughs> are you ready a for this? A film cannot be a spirit animal. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I, I but... also flag on that play. But yeah. it's that one film in a million that makes me feel the afterglow of an orgasm. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm going to skip down. Ew. I know. And so then he writes, he writes this to the original poster. I'm sure you know that you and I are now brothers connected through the shared celluloid blood that is wild at heart. <laughs> and I just came here to salute you. <laughs> then <laughs> Tyrannosaurus Max responds. You said yes. it. <laughs> and I, then, okay. I love these lame ass posters yep. who are like, all right, you know, just like, <laughs> go away. You're not adding any substance I know, like, come to on. this talk about coming. Flesh out your thoughts. <laughs> then, like literally flesh out. <laughs> <it. laughs> then Soulbreaker1418 says, you have a brother in arms here too, pal. For, <laughs> and it says brother in arms uh, here, pal, to war for wild at heart. <laughs> Jokes? This I don't know. Atmosphere. I don't know what this battle is. <laughs> Jokes and psychoanalysis aside, also I have to tell you how he spells psychoanalysis. Just spell this out in your mind or on your computer. Okay. P S I C O A N A L Y S. <laughs> psychoanalysis aside, <laughs> he says, I don't care that the characters are very basic and the plot's kind of a mess in the second half. Every time I see this movie, I just want to go out and live. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yep. So then we jump over to, to the Rotten Tomatoes forum. <laughs> and Dave Roberts writes, My mom, upon walking by the TV as Miss Ladd freaked out on the phone with Harry Stanton, says, quote, Ugh, why her face so red? <laughs> and then he, he, he explains in a parenthetical, She doesn't have bad grammar. She's Taiwanese. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, Thank you, 
before. I was waiting. Yeah. <laughs> and then <laughs> I have to scroll down to get to the other one. Yeah, so then Neon Man writes, as Neon a defense, Man. a defense of why Wild at Heart is a good movie. It's the only film I can recall that is insanely violent and disturbingly sexual, contains opera and metal music, has a great love story to it, and Wizard of Oz references implemented into the storyline. <laughs> I mean, it's a very, very he's specific right. list. <laughs> uh, he's technically right. I mean, Neon Man, <laughs> when you're right, you're right. When you are, you're on it, Neon Man. Yeah, and so when I look for the conspiracy theory ones, I just try and like troll every, not troll, I shouldn't say that, guys, I don't support trolls, but I, <laughs> I peruse just forums, and so sometimes I'll just Google like David Lynch Wild at Heart forum and see what comes up, yeah. and I was perusing the Google results, and uh, when I saw one that said David Lynch films slash Illuminati, I knew I'd come oh. to the right place. Oh, speaking of, really quickly, yeah. I also tried Googling this, but I am not as good of a researcher as you are. So I was Googling wild at heart theories, and apparently there's also a religious text called wild at yes, heart. Yes, I came across that too. <laughs> so I was very, very confused, and then I just <laughs> gave up and played Batman. <laughs> I, I, I support that decision. <laughs> So, uh, member Rex writes... I've Another f- Rex! There's yeah. a, there was Tyrannosaurus Max, and now oh, yeah. Rex, yeah. Maybe, oh, conspiracy. There, there we go, I found it. We're already falling down the rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> I've known for years that The Wizard of Oz was, slash, is used as a programming matrix for trauma-based mind control. That's one what? of the reasons we see and hear so many references to the movie in our culture. I've also known that filmmaker David Lynch refers to The Wizard of Oz in his movies. Wild at Heart is filled with the references. And I watched Blue Velvet, a while, uh, Blue Velvet a while back and noticed the red slippers belonging to the nightclub singer, who's also named Dorothy. So I've been looking Fair. around for Lynch slash Monarch information. Okay, so from what I can surmise, Project Monarch, as it's discussed on this message board, is a, a subset of CIA's like MK Ultra mind control program. And Whoa. so it's about, yeah, and so they're convinced that uh, these references, Wizard of Oz references, and all kinds of other references they pull out in David Lynch films are actually being used to sort of like subliminally influence uh, watchers, uh, viewers of the Whoa. film. So but like they, to do what? You I, know? It's like, a great I, question. I've been watching a ton of Lynch films, and I am the least productive member of society. So if like, if this you mean is a you've strategy... Been pacified? <laughs> if this is a strategy to like make me do something... I haven't left my house <laughs> in a long time. So <laughs> So they like freeze frame that we talked about this too, that opening shot of like the white picket fences and the flowers. Yeah. If you freeze frame and zoom in, one of the roses falls directly across one of the um, vertical pickets and it actually looks like a rose in front of a cross. And so they're like, oh, it's oh. the Rosicrucian symbol. Oh my gosh, there's so much. Yeah, so this is Rex, a lot. Rex posits that he uh, shares everyone with everyone a link to his site called hollywoodsubliminals.wordpress.com, which Good. tracks subliminal messaging. And then from there, this forum takes off and people start listing and screenshotting everything they can find, including <laughs> theories about how Mulholland Drive is really about 9 11, about Dorothy Valence as Dorothy from Kansas about uh license plates that repeat across films so 
Uh, Mulholland Drive has a license plate that we also see in the Steven Soderbergh film Traffic and in Beverly Hills Cop 2, which means something. Wow. Yeah, so it goes on and on. This took way too much time. (laughs) I know. And then this is the best. So Rex finally, at the long end of this, the very end, he he writes to everyone, excellent research. Uh, It'll take me a while to go through it all, but thanks for putting it up. But if I may be allowed to make an observation... Freud said, quote, sometimes the cigar is just a cigar. <laughs> I've been thinking more and more about that lately. Oh, no, he's backtracking. <laughs> so all of a sudden, he's like, guys, I think you all got a little carried away. <laughs> what a jerk. I like, know. You spurred this yep. <laughs> conspiracy theory, conspiracy hub thing. And now you are, oh, what a jerk. Yeah, That's so Rex, terrible. it's a dick move. Yeah, total dick move. Good on you, bro. <laughs> yeah, not good for you, bro. <laughs> Confused oh, puppy man. face would not be uh, in support. No, of this. he wouldn't. Neither would beef pie soup. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so um, anyway, I mean that wraps up. I think the the wild heart stuff for today. Okay. But, well, can I do a beautiful segue because I yeah. I think I'm I'm really working on these skills. This episode is really bringing out for me how terrible I am naturally at segues and how I should practice this. But you were just talking about mind control. Mm -hmm. And um, my obsession for this week is related to the notion of mind control. So can I, can I tell you what it is? Yeah, of course. Okay. So my obsession for this week is a podcast uh, called homecoming. Have you heard of it? No. Oh, it is so good. So it's, um, it's a story. It's, it's not, it's not a, I'm it's a pulling it up story. right now, though. Um, and again, I don't know why this has happened in my life, but it stars David Schwimmer. Uh, <laughs> so once again, in this weird way, with both the OJ FX series and now with um, this podcast, David Schwimmer is back in my life. And it stars um, Catherine Keener, who's just fabulous, one of the best mm-hmm. actresses, I think, is, who's out there. And a few other people like David Cross, Amy Sedaris, people like that. Um, And so it's just six episodes for this first season. And they're very short. They're 30 minutes long. But what is so, so good about this is that they have incredibly realistic sound. So um, instead of just a phone call being, you know, nothing in the background and two actors' voices, there's, like, a lot of background noises. If they're at the cafeteria, you can hear in the audio, um, audio, like people eating in the background and plates clamoring and things like that. Oh, nice. And it's, it's a psychological thriller in which basically, I don't want to give it away, but basically there are these soldiers who have just returned from active service and they go to this facility and something weird happens with their minds when they come home. Mm, and very it's so good. Candidate. Yes. So you should check it out. It's called Homecoming. If you just searched like Homecoming Podcast, you'd find it. I already found it. I already subscribed. I'll check oh, it out. Yeah, do it. Cool. So mine actually is not about mind control, but it is about soldiers. Oh, weird. So I'm catching up. I'm uh, I'm up in New Jersey uh, for the week. That's why we're doing a long distance podcast. And because I don't have much schoolwork to do this week, I've been catching up on a bunch of like long forms that I've bookmarked to read that I hadn't gotten around to reading. Yeah. And so one of them that I went through that was amazing uh, was published originally in The Intercept back in mid-January. It's written by Matthew Cole, and it's called The Crimes of SEAL Team 6. I hope okay. this isn't too like political or too serious for our podcast. 
but it's essentially a deep dive into the sort of some of the secret goings-ons uh in seal team six so they're been really championed for their like heroism and their hard work and the, their rigorous training in the 21st century but through sort of anonymous interviews with certain um, members of the the team uh, we've learned they've also engaged in pretty like horrific crazy things oh. so it's a long form so it allows you to sort of like think quite uh, to explore sort of all kinds of different thematic concerns so yeah. it really is about the way in which the sort of rigorous training can lead you to become really unhinged and do incredibly sort of violent and unethical things but then also about the the lack of sort of oversight that seal team six essentially gets to like legislate itself and punish its own people and then also about the sort of just like role of heroism and hero narratives right so is it that we don't talk widely about these things because we need to sort of nationally believe that we are doing heroic things when um actually some of the things we're doing are not great and so, it's... so do you hear anything about like their relationships among each other? Because this is mm-hmm. why, like, this is why I like the X Men, right? Because <laughs> there's, <laughs> you know, because like they have relation interrelationships. So yeah, so there's actually like a, a this. It opens with this long discussion of this sort of uh, the series of uh, I forget the I, I never remember military terms. Series of not mission. I guess missions you could say that really start to look like uh, a revenge plot where this oh. one soldier that's beloved is killed and they retaliate and sort of really brutally uh, injure or kill people. And it seems as though that this is actually like, uh, it's it's a political mission, but it's also sort of a personal vendetta. And it's, it's, it's just fascinating and incredibly well-written. So I recommend it. Okay. All right. We'll and check I'll it think out. Something, actually, so this is a confession, too. I thought uh, because we were going to be doing Twin Peaks next week, I would watch uh, that show Riverdale, which is sort of Twin Peaksy. Oh, yeah. But I've just, not seen it. It's just okay. So uh, I was like, I can't in good conscience recommend this. So oh, man. I was going to have a much more lighthearted one. So I'll have something <laughs> lighthearted next week. I'm going to I'm gonna have cannibalism next week. I'm going to finish yes. my book about cannibals. And tell us all about it. talk more about snails eating penises. Or people so. eating people. People eating people is oh man! I cannot wait to tell you about people eating people. I have right. so many good stories, but I will save those for next week. All right, okay. look forward to it. Okay, so Twin Peaks and cannibalism next week. We'll see you Stay then. Stay tuned. <laughs> and uh, we really need to like set a hard date on the calendar to think about how we're going to exit. Like, Fuck yeah! Think about our outro. But for now, we will just see you next week. Yeah. Take care. Bye. Love me. Tender. Love me sweet